So like I said, this morning we're going to just take a, a week off of uh, 1 Corinthians and just look at the Reformed view of salvation. Um, not that I, you know, like I said, the only reason I pulled this out is because I didn't have time to make a lesson. So I'm, I'm not trying to address any kind of particular lack in our church or any kind of particular problem I perceive in our church. I just figured this might be a good um, lesson to sort of maybe reinforce or um, remind people what it is exactly that we believe in the Reformed uh, faith. Because, first of all, we need to understand, you know, a lot of people confuse Reformed with just the five points of Calvinism. They think is if I believe the five points, if I believe in tulip, I'm reformed. Really, reform goes way beyond that. There's much more, you know. I mean, if if I were to draw a line or a circle, let's say a circle that re, that describes reform theology, tulip would be within that. Okay, tulip is part of reform theology. It is part of an understanding, a biblical understanding of our salvation. But just a little bit of background on this, a little bit of history and background, because in order to understand the Reformation and the Reformed view of salvation, you have to understand what it was in reaction to or what it was coming out against. And that is the, the greater backdrop of Roman Catholicism versus Protestantism. Boy, I say that fast. Protestantism, there you go. So we need, in order to know where we are, we need to know where, from where we came. And the traditional starting point for the Protestant Reformation, of course, well, do you guys know the, when we consider when the Reformation began? Right. Do you know what day that falls on? Halloween, right. So on Halloween, on All Hallows' Eve, Martin Luther after observing the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in regard to indulgences and how they were sort of enslaving the people of God through this system of indulgences, he, he got a pit, in a pit of feet, he wrote down all the issues he thought that were going on in the Catholic Church in regard to the sale of indulgences and other things, too, that he felt were not biblical. Now, this is... You have to understand, Martin Luther didn't just wake up one day and, and came to this conclusion. This was something that had been percolating in his brain, in his mind, and in his life for many years as he had gone to study theology and as he had sort of started to teach through the Bible. And as he became a professor of theology, he started with the Psalms and then went on to Romans and then went on to Galatians. And as he was teaching through this, it started to form in his mind this idea that the just shall live by faith alone. And so he writes the, the theses and nails them on the door on October 31st, 1517. So four years ago we celebrated the 500th anniversary of that day. But the debate that was going on was over the abuse, as I said, the abuse of indulgences. And the heart of the Reformation then centered on really two main points. And those two main points were the issue of authority, where does the authority lie? And then the issue of justification, how is one made right before God? So the battle lines, as the battle lines were being drawn, these two points then pitted the following against one another. So in the case of authority, you have, as Martin Luther and the other reformers said, sola scriptura, which means what? 
Scripture alone. Okay? So, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, or the Scripture plus the church. Okay? It's not that the Roman Catholic Church does not believe that the, the Bible was divinely inspired, that it's not the Word of God, that it, that it isn't authoritative. It's just that they say, in addition to Scripture, we have the church. We have church tradition. We have the magisterium, who is the sort of inspired interpreter of, of Scripture. Okay, so it's, again, we, we need to think you know, that it's not that the Roman Catholics don't believe in the Bible. They do believe in the Bible. They just believe in the Bible and. And they add in the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. So in a way, you could kind of say that their belief, instead of sola scriptura, is, to use the Latin phrase, sola ecclesia, or church alone. Because it's always the church. Whatever issue you want to point on, it always falls down and always reduces to the authority of the church versus the authority of Scripture. Then in the issue of justification, how is one made right before God? Well, the Reformers, including Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and all the other people, they said sola fide, which means what? Faith alone. Right, faith alone. Now again... The Roman Catholic Church believes that we are saved by faith. They just leave the alone part out. <laughs> okay, again, it's, it's, not, it's not that they don't believe that we have to believe in Jesus, that we have to trust in him, that we have to have faith in him. It's just that they say you have to have faith, and, and if you were going to fill in the blank of what the and is, what would you think it would be? And how are the good works sort of... Um, how are they sort of understood in the Roman Catholic sense? Closer, you're getting closer. What, what in particular in the church? What do, they, what do they have to do in the church? Confession. And what is confession for them? What is it? It's, we have a word for it. We use it too. It begins with S. Sacrament. Right, the sacraments. So conf- they, first you have, to, you have to be baptized. Roman Catholic view of baptism is that that is when grace is infused into you. So you are made righteous by baptism. Problem is, we are sinners. They believe we're sinners too, right? They believe that we can fall and sin. So when you sin, you lose that grace. So you fall from grace, whether it's either a venial sin or a mortal sin. Venial sins are minor. Mortal sins cause you to lose your salvation. So if you commit mortal sin, then you have to go in and use what they call the second plank of justification, which is the sacrament of confession. You have to go and confess and then make acts of, re- of, of repentance and retribution to uh, atonement to sort of um, make up for the fact that you fell into sin. So you, you have grace, you fall out of grace, you confess, you do whatever the priest subscribes, and then you're back into a state of grace. You also have to take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in which you are literally imbibing and and eating the blood and body of Christ. You are taking Christ in you and you are receiving the grace that comes through that. So you have to continually maintain these sacrifices, good works through uh, repentance and confession, uh, the, the sacraments, all these other things. You have to do this in addition to faith in order to be justified. And the main difference is that whereas... The Protestants say 
we are justified by faith, which is the faith that is imputed to us, which is given to us from outside, right? That's what Paul says. I, I wish in Philippians 3.9, he says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So we believe that through faith, Christ gives us his righteousness. So his perfect righteousness that he lived according to the law is given to us through faith. So my, one of my favorite illustrations is you have a refrigerator and you have a power cord. The power cord would be the faith. The juice that flows to the refrigerator from the power cord is the righteousness that is imputed to us as it comes through the channel of faith and powers our life. So we are given that righteousness through our faith, whereas the Roman Catholic view says, no, you have to, you have to become righteous. And you become righteous by being baptized initially, and then by going through the sacramental system, you continue to grow in righteousness, you do good works, works of mercy, works of almsgiving, just general good works. You sort of build up this righteousness. And then when you die, you go before God. And if your righteousness is good enough, you go right into heaven. If your righteousness is not good enough, where do you go? Purgatory. Now, is purgatory hell? No. What's the purpose of purgatory? It's kind of hidden in the word there. It's a purging. It's a purging. It's like, you didn't do enough good works to get into heaven. So you have to sort of work off your debt in, in this purgatory area. And then you can come into heaven. And, and that's where the indulgences come in. Because through the indulgences, if you give money to the church and buy an indulgence, you can, the Pope will sort of grant leniency because he just goes into the treasury of merits, the, the merits that are earned by Jesus Christ and the saints who are so holy and so righteous, they just immediately went into heaven when they died. And he says, okay, I'm going to, grant, I'm going to grab some of this treasury of merit. I'm going to apply it to your life or to, for whom, uh, whoever you're buying the indulgence for. Then that person will have some time taken off of their um, time in purgatory. To which Martin Luther said, if the Pope was that gracious and if he could just dig into this infinite treasure of merits, why doesn't he just release all of purgatory? You know, why go through this system where I have to give you money and then you take like a hundred years off of my time in purgatory? What good is that? You know, if, if, if God is so gracious and if the Pope is so kind and he can just dip into this treasury whenever, I, you know, spread it liberally. <laughs> but anyway, so back to the, the, uh, the, the situation here. So it's the, on, on the issue of authority is, Scripture or Scripture plus the church? On the issue of justification, it's faith alone or faith plus good works being performed through the sacramental system? You have a question? You, I see that hand getting ready to go up. <laughs> As you're going through the what, uh, what Roman Catholic beliefs, did that evolve over time and day? Yes. If you are saying specifically, when did the Roman Catholic Church begin? My, <clears throat> I would make an argument for when uh, Pope Gregory the Great saved the Roman Empire from the invading barbarians. And that would have been about, four, about 425, 450, oh. you know, like around, around the fall of Rome. Because that's when, see, this is where you have to understand sort of the history of the church, okay? So 
the Western Empire was during the period of that time, you know, the, in the ancient church, was relatively weak. Whereas, because Constantine, when he became emperor, he, he took the capital out of Rome and moved it to Constantinople on the eastern side of the empire. So the western side of the empire, you know, when you move the capital out of an area, it kind of loses its prominence, loses its influence, right? Which is why it was much more easily taken over when the barbarians invaded. When they invaded, they took over the western half of the empire. Eastern half of the empire stayed, you know, in various forms at various levels of strength all the way up until like 1450, Another thousand years the, the Eastern Empire lasted. So because of that, when you take the political power out of the empire and move it to another location, what's left? Well, you have the bishop in Rome. He's left. He kind of, so when the barbarians invade, he kind of becomes the savior of Rome, uh, Pope Gregory. All right. Now, he's not the first pope because the Roman Catholics believe that Peter was the first pope. And then depending on, you know, if you look at the lineage, there's popes that kind of pump, jump in, they jump out, and it's not an unbroken line. So, but with, with a lot of the work of St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say, if you say it right, it's Augustine, actually. With the work of St. Augustine, it's, it's interesting because the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers both reference him. You know, Calvin quotes Augustine a lot, but then so do the Roman Catholic Church. They quote Augustine a lot. And they quote him for different reasons. Because Augustine was a very firm believer in predestination and justification by faith alone. But he was also very heavily into sacramentology, and he kind of developed the early stages of the sacramental system, which the Roman Catholic Church, that's what they latch on to. So... Bottom line is, I'm not sure exactly where they started going off the rails, but if you think of, you know, if you take two parallel lines and you just so slightly alter the, the degree between them, you know, the angle between them, so it's not perfectly parallel, just, you just move it off by a fraction of a degree, well, they're going to run par pretty parallel for a while, but then you go a thousand years later, where would that be? Well, it would be like this, right? That's, I think, what happens is by the time you get to this period of time in history, the Roman Catholic Church is so far veered from the true gospel that it's, it's not even recognizable anymore, right? Because when Martin Luther and others start to rediscover the scriptures, right, they, they find the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, no longer having to rely on the Latin translation, and they're able to go back to the original languages and read Paul in the original languages, they're able to see where the, the Roman Catholic Church has gone wrong because of their interpretation in Latin. So, <clears throat> so when he sees that and he's, he, he proclaims the gospel to them, they reject it, right? I mean, they just flat out reject it. You're wrong because you're going against the authority of the church and you're going against what this church council said and that church council said. And then Luther would say, well, yeah, but you realize that that church council contradicted everything that this church council said you know, so, you know, your own councils contradict one another. So it's, it's this whole process of, you know, again, I think if you just, if you start going off the rails very slightly early on, by the if you don't correct it, by the time you get, you know, 500 years, 1,000 years later, I mean, they were very heavily into this sacramental system by the 11th or 12th century. So we've got the, the battle lines and the authority thing here, right? Authority and justification. All right, so that's the background. Now when you get to 
the idea of the Calvinists versus the Arminians. Because why do I mention the Roman Catholic versus the Protestant debate? Because uh, to acknowledge it, when we talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism, we are talking about a debate that is within the Protestant realm. It's, within the, it's sort of an in-house debate within Protestantism. Because Arminians are not Roman Catholics. They would be as much anti, particularly in this day, they would have been as much anti-Catholic as the Reformers would have been. Okay? So though Calvinists and Arminians differ on the doctrine of salvation, the difference is, I believe, still between brothers and sisters in Christ. Who peep, it's an in-house debate. It's a, sort of like a family feud, if you want to put it that way. Now, let's look at the two individual figures that seem to get sort of lumped together as the, the heads of these two you know, rival parties within the family. Okay, you've got John Calvin... And, and the other guy is Jacob Arminius. Okay, Calvin, um, sort of a, I guess you can call him a first-generation uh, first, uh, reformer. Uh, he comes about 20 years after Luther. He was born in 1509, lived until 1564. If you're curious about Luther's dates, Luther, I believe, was 1483 and went to 1546. That's how you can remember the death dates because it's the same numbers but you transpose the last two. So Calvin's 1564, Luther's 1546. But Calvin was a French theologian who fled France for Switzerland after experiencing religious persecution uh, for his Protestant views. In fact, you know, you know what the story kind of is of the French Reformation? It didn't last very long. And the reason why is because they didn't get a lot of support from neighboring Reformed Nations. The, the French, you know what the French reformers were called? The Huguenots? Okay, the Huguenots were wiped out. And there was a Louis the Louis the Fourteenth, one of the Louis, um, had a it was a massacre. He sort of lured them in to say, let's let's talk about our differences. Come, let us reason together. Lured the Huguenot leadership in and then promptly slaughtered all of them. So the French, the French reformers were completely white. I mean, there's still Huguenots that escaped and, and went to other places. They fled to other countries. You might even have some Huguenot influences in the United States. But they were, for the most part, wiped out. And Calvin, French, leaves France to Switzerland after persecution. Later, he becomes a pastor in Geneva. And he's known for his many, many commentaries. He wrote a commentary in almost every book of the Bible. I don't think he wrote one for Revelation, which would have been helpful since we're going through Revelation. But considering how young he was this, and how young he was when he wrote the Institutes, which is his systematic theology, this dude puts everyone to shame. Okay, everyone to shame. He wrote, I think he was 25 when, when, the, when the first edition of the Institutes came out. And he modified it like four or five times. But that's his other, his magnum opus is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Jacob Arminius would certainly, certainly be next generation because he was born four years before Calvin died in 1560, and he lived to 1609. He was a Dutch reformer, so he's up in the Holland area, the, the Netherlands, and uh, of the later Reformation period, who became a professor at the University of Leiden, L-E-I-D-E-N, before his death. And before his death in 1609, he began to question 
aspects of the Reformed faith that were summarized in the Belgic Confession. Now, the Belgic Confession is one of our three standards of unity. It is the earliest confession of faith, came out in 1561. And it was the confession of faith for the Dutch churches. That's where you get the Belgic reference from. So the churches of the Netherlands and the Belgium area before Belgium became a country, that whole area up there uh, in, the, in, the, in the Dutch area, that was their confession of faith. Well, Arminius started to have some questions about the Belgic confession and began to teach against some of the things that he had objections to in the Belgic confession. So the debate. So what is the debate here then between the, uh, the Calvinists and the Arminians? Well, the debate is after the death of Jacob Arminius, his followers, so his students who learned from him in, in Leiden, they were known as the remonstrants. Okay? You don't need to necessarily write that down. <laughs> but to, to remonstrate is to sort of to have a, an objection to. So they were the objectors. And they issued... An, uh, uh, an official document called the Five Articles of the Remonstrants. And they did this in 1610. So they, they, they wrote down their objections to their view of the Reformed faith, the, those articles in the Belgic Confession they had objections to. They wrote them down and, and presented them to the Dutch Reformed Church in 1610. And then these disputes were later taken up by the Reformed Church in 1618, and they convened the Synod of Dort, which we have the Canons of Dort, which is another one of our Reformed um, confessions that we subscribe to in this church. So the, the Synod of Dort convened in the year 1618 through 1619 with the result that the doctrine of the Remonstrance was rejected. So these Arminians, they had objections, they presented them. The Dutch Reformed Church took, set up a council to look into them, and they said, we reject all of your objections. <laughs> Which is why when you look at the, the, the canons of Dort, they'll be, it's, it's sort of written as a response to the remonstrance. It, so it says, this is, the, this is the doctrine they were questioning. This is what we believe. These are the errors that they have pr uh, uh, promoted, and this is why we reject their errors. So that's how it's, it's written out. So we believe this, 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 and this. This is what the errors that the remonstrants teach, and we reject, we reject, we reject, we reject. That's how that document is written. So they rejected the remonstrants, and they upheld the Belgic Confession. Um, so the, okay, so that's the debate. The debate essentially boils down to the issue, and I'm going to use a couple of fancy words here, monergism and synergism. Monergism and synergism. Those are the fancy words basically mean that you now you've got it's a compound word, and in that word you've got the Greek word ergos, which means work. Okay, that's where you get the ergism <laughs> from. Okay, um, we get the word energy from it. Monergism is working alone, synergism is working with. So the debate between the Arminians and the Calvinists is that is a, really it's a debate between God works alone in our salvation or God works with us in our salvation. Okay? Calvinists believe God works alone. That's why we emphasize faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We're very big on the sola, 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 soli. Okay, that's what we're very, very big on. 
The Arminians are kind of big on that too, but then they say, no, God works with us. God does a lot of the work. He may do 99.9999999678% of the work, but we still have that one little point zero 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 point three two two percent of the work, if, I, if my math was right. In the Articles of the Remonstrants, what the Arminians, the followers of Jacob Arminius, the objections that they had focused on five key elements, which are, you see them in the Belgic Confession. Now, they may not be as clearly delineated in the way that we understand them as the five points are. If you want to really get a clear understanding of the five points, you've got to look at the Canons of Dort because they really nail it down. But it's in the Belgic Confession. Maybe just not, you have to draw it out a little bit. But their key elements of disputation were that predestination or election is conditional. Predestination or election is conditional. We'll get into this more deeply, but I'm just going to go through these here. So predestination or election is conditional. Atonement is universal. So, atonement is universal. Third, man cannot of himself exercise saving faith, but needs God's prevenient grace. Okay, I'll say that again. Man cannot of himself exercise a saving faith, but needs God's prevenient grace. In other words, you know how you... I'm going to display my colossal ignorance here. All right, if you've got an older motorcycle, you've got to do the, you know, the, 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 you know, you got to do that with it. You know, that shows you how much I know about them. What, what's it called? The kick, the, the kick start, right? Okay. In order to start the motorcycle, you've got to, got to give it a, like, you know, kind of rev it up, right? God has to sort of kick start our faith with this prevenient grace, and then we are able to, to move forward. So that's three. Four. God's grace is necessary, but does not act irresistibly. In other words, it can be resisted. God's grace is necessary for salvation. Amen. I would believe that too. But it does not act irresistibly. And then finally, the fifth article of the remonstrance are believers are able to fall away from grace and lose their salvation. Believers are able to fall away from grace and lose their salvation. So that's the background. So now let's look at the Reformed view of salvation. Uh, again, if you remember their articles, uh, the, now if, if, you were to, if you were to put them in order, all right, so we, we use the acronym TULIP, right? Okay, so TULIP, who can give me the, the, what TULIP means? The T means what? Total depravity. The U is? Unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. The I, irresistible grace. And the P, perseverance of the saints. Okay. Now, if you were to listen to R.C. Sproul, he would change those up. Total depravity would become radical corruption. You'd still have the U. The L would be definite atonement. The I would be effective grace. And then the P would still be there, but it would be preservation of the saints. Not perseverance, but it's a, but then you get like you get like rudep. It's 
It's hard, it's hard to tiptoe through rudeps. It's much easier to tiptoe through tulips. So that was my dad joke for the morning. But now if you look at the articles, of the, or if you look at the canons of Dort, they're not arranged in the tulip fashion, in the tulip order. They start off with unconditional election, because that's how the remonstrants started it. They, 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 again, they said election is conditional. You know, so, then, you know, so they look at, you know, the way it would be, it would be like ultip, I think, if, they, if you were to take the tulip and show how the Calvinists responded to it, it, would, it would, the order would be ultip, unconditional election, limited atonement, then total depravity, then irresistible grace, and then perseverance of the saints. But I'm going to do it in the order that we are familiar with, which is tulip. But the canons of Dort, the fruit of the synod of Dort, put forth the official response to the remonstrance, which then becomes later known as the five points of Calvinism, each of which is a counterpoint to the issues that the remonstrants raised. And like I said, these, these points get somewhat rearranged in their order, but they now go by the popular acronym TULIP. So the first part of TULIP is the T for total depravity. So what does total depravity mean? If I were to ask you that question, how would you describe to me total depravity? Okay, no redeeming qualities. That's actually, you know, using the word redemption is good. I like that. How else would, would one just... Everything we do is tainted by sin. I like that one too. Now, let's first go by what total depravity doesn't mean. Okay, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that man is as bad or as evil as he possibly can be. Okay, because you look around the world today, you see people who are unbelievers and... They do a lot of good, at least a lot of good from a worldly perspective. They help old ladies across the street. They give to charity. They love their families. They, you know, they pick up their trash. They do good things. All right? So it's not that unbelievers or that just people in general are as bad as they can be. Because who would you say, if if we're going to just, let's do a poll, who would you say is the, the number one most vile, evil, wretched person, the, the biggest scoundrel in the history of the world. Adolf Hitler. Okay, that's all, yeah, he always wins the prize. Poor guy. Could Adolf Hitler have been more evil? Yes. He was, he was reported to have, no, he didn't personally kill six million Jews, but under his watch, six million Jews were killed. If six million and one Jews were killed, would that have been worse? If 7 million Jews were killed, would that have been worse? If 12 million Jews had been... If he had exterminated all the Jews, if he had actually succeeded and exterminated all the Jews, that would be worse. So Adolf Hitler was not as bad as he could have been. Okay? But he was wicked. I'm not, I'm not denying that. So it's not, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be. Any, you take any person, any person in the history of the world, they could, there's always more evil. Right? Because God, if you think about it, in his common grace, has his hand of restraint on us and holds back our evil. Which is why when when we looked at Romans 1 and we see how the wrath of God is being revealed against man's unrighteousness, after he goes through that, then he says, God gave them over. And he repeats it three times. God gave them over. That's God removing his restraining hand from us and saying, okay, as a judgment, I'm going to let you reap what you have sown to its fullest extent. 
So then people just go into all kinds of wickedness because God gives them up, right? So we are not as bad as we could possibly be. And it, doesn't also mean, it also doesn't mean that mankind is equally or to the same extent evil. Again, you know, I, you know Adolf Hitler and your garden variety unbeliever. Okay? Adolf Hitler versus an unbeliever who doesn't believe in Christ, rejects God, doesn't like Christians, but loves his family, picks up his trash, gives, helps old ladies across the street, you know, all these things. You know, if you were to put those in a scale, would the scales be perfectly even? No, it would tip over to Adolf Hitler's side. So total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be or that we're all equally to the same extent evil. But what it does mean is that mankind in its natural state is dead and his trespasses and sins. Okay, so you thought we weren't going to turn in the Bible. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2 here, um, Paul, after talking about our salvation, our Trinitarian salvation and giving this great prayer for spiritual wisdom, talks about how our situation is. So he talks about how we are saved in eternity past by the Father, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Then he goes into what I like to call, he goes into space and time and says, okay, this is what you were like. Okay, even, you may have been chosen before the foundation of the world, but before God's grace actually came into your life, this is what you were like. So chapter 2, verse 1. And you, believers in Ephesus, or you, believers in Sutton, or in Emmanuel Reformed Church in Sutton, Nebraska, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom, we, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like the others, or just as the others. So that's what total depravity means. <laughs> okay, we were... Born in wickedness. We walked in sins and trespasses. We were dead in sins and trespasses. Very, it's very poignant that Paul uses the word dead. Because as we'll see later on, according to the Arminians, you know, to quote Monty Python, I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> you know, I, I feel happy. <laughs> You know, I'm not quite dead yet. I can, I, I'm, I'm just really, really, really sick. And I need a really good doctor, but I'm not dead yet. Paul says, no, no, you're dead. You are dead. You may be walking and talking and breathing, but spiritually speaking, you are dead. Because that's why, you know, what's my favorite word in the Bible? What's the first word in verse 4? But... God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together. And he goes on. So this death that we are in is a spiritual death. It is a death in which we are unresponsive and uninterested in the things of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him. 
Another analogy that we see in the Bible is that we are slaves to sin. If you remember that from Romans 6, Paul says we are slaves because of our deadness to sin, because of our deadness in our trespasses and sins. We are slaves to sin. So, how much freedom and liberty does a slave have? Zero. How much life do you expect out of a corpse? Zero, okay? We are unable. We are totally depraved. So total depravity is a result of the fall, Genesis 3, and the fallen human nature that came as a result of the fall, which is passed on to each of Adam's descendants, as some confessions will say, by means of natural, natural generation, i.e. men and women getting together, doing what men and women do, having babies. That sin is passed through us. And I'm not saying it's genetic. I'm just saying it is passed through the act of natural generation, which was exactly why Jesus had to be born supernaturally. If he was born through the results of natural generation, then he would not have been able to atone for our sins because he would have had to atone for his own sins. So we are fallen. We are totally depraved, radically corrupt. And because of the total corruption of our nature and our deadness in sin, we need, we need more than just a little kickstart to get us going. Right? You know, like, you know, we need more than just medicine because we're fatally ill. No, we need resuscitation because we are dead. Dead men cannot respond to anything. Slaves cannot break their own chains. We need a resurrection. We need someone to break our chains and set us free. And I'm just going to come up with a few objections to total depravity, and then we'll call it for the morning. Um, so some objections to total depravity. And again, I kind of hinted at this earlier. Uh, we see people doing all sorts of good deeds, right? Acts of charity, self-sacrifice even. So how can, we, how can that be if we are totally depraved? Well, again, I, I mentioned common grace, right? God's common grace, he withholds the, the sinfulness of our sin. He doesn't allow us necessarily to completely go into the depths of our own sin. God restrains our sinfulness. But then, as I think, I think it might have been Sue, someone said, even the good deeds that we do, though, are tainted by sin because we may do a good deed, right? We may do, some, we may do something that even conforms outwardly to the law of God. But what does Jesus say, right? Okay, you don't commit adultery. That's wonderful. But do you lust in your heart? You don't murder. That's wonderful. But are you angry at your brother? See, you know, you could do a lot of things that, outward, you know, if to, to my eyes look like, oh, okay, that person's following the law of God. He respects his parents. He doesn't steal. He doesn't, you know, he hasn't committed adultery. He doesn't lust. You know, he hasn't murdered anybody. But, Again, the, un, the, the good deeds that unbelievers do are tainted by sin if they're not done from a heart that loves God and seeks to glorify and enjoy Him forever. And again, what about, what about the unbeliever who leads a better, more moral life than a believer? Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah. Is that possible? Absolutely. Again, I note common grace. That, that's, that's mostly a result of common grace. But then again, we also have to understand God doesn't save us on the basis of our works. Right? We're not saved by works. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ, which is received through faith. And I see the, the neighbors are getting restless out there. So um, I'm going to call it here. Um,
you have any questions, hold on to them for next week. Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up uh, with unconditional election next week.